We are coming towards the end of our series looking at corporate worship. And uh, we say it all the time, but let's say it again. Worship encompasses all our lives. It's about all our life, every moment, every day. But God has given us special promises when we gather together like this. He's promised to be among us, and he is among us. We've heard him speaking to us this morning. But we're looking at this because we believe there is more, and we are hungry for more of God's presence in our midst as we gather. Last week, uh, Rob Golding spoke about true worship. If you weren't here, catch up on the, on the website, about worship as a meeting with God. Worship as something that is first and foremost about our hearts. And today we're looking at worship that God deserves. Worship that God deserves. And I, and I want us to look at, we're going to look at three accounts in the Bible of worship, involving worshippers. And I'm going to share a bit of my own journey with you, which I hope will be helpful. We're going to be looking at both expressions of worship, like we've been doing this morning, and the heart of worship. But hear me now, I'm not trying to give you some tick list of expressions of worship. Corporate worship is not about externalism. I'm not talking today about orchestrating our worship, turning our Sunday mornings into some sort of spiritual aerobics session that we can all do. We don't want well-rehearsed, choreographed expressions of worship if our hearts are far from God. What I want, and I hope what you want, is that my heart is so taken up with God that expressions of worship that flow out of me are true and meaningful. They have integrity and they bless God. Because it's true to say, isn't it, that when something happens in our hearts, it tends to kind of leak out through all the rest of us. You can see when people are in love. Something is happening in their heart but they start doing all sorts of strange things that they didn't do before. When we put our trust in Jesus, as we've been hearing about this morning, we get a new heart, the Bible says. And then we begin this lifelong process where what God has done in our heart starts to work out through our thinking being transformed and through our, our lives being changed more and more into his likeness. So it should be perhaps no surprise that when we read one of the most famous Bible verses on worship, it speaks about this. What happens here? There we go. Can I have this one? Is this dead? And so, dear brothers, that says, this is Romans 12 verse 1, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living, holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship God. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I want to encourage you to pray that God will reveal himself to you, make himself known to you. It's a great prayer to to ask. Because what the Bible says is this, once you see, once you see what God has done for you, then the only reasonable thing you can do is to give yourself to him. It's that logical. It's that sensible. It's that reasonable. 
And it, this verse encourages us to give our bodies, our bodies. How about that? You see, we shouldn't believe the lie that there's no connection between what goes on in our heart and all the rest of us. Our soul, our spirits, our bodies. That what we do with our bodies doesn't connect with all that. The psalm we started with this morning, in another version, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. All of me. Every part. Genuine worship comes from a heart that sees what God has done and which works it out day by day in what we do with our bodies and our minds as our thinking is transformed. And what we do with our bodies, our lips, our hands, our heads, our feet, our legs is for every moment of every day and when we come together in corporate worship. That's why we took the offering up a bit differently this morning. Most of us probably give online, but there's something about moving forward. There's something about putting something in that says, this is intentional. This is my offering. I put a slip of paper in. We haven't given any money yet. I just made a promise to God. This is my promise, Lord, and I'm coming out to do it. That's why we did that. So let's look at a story which illustrates my first point. And that's this. The worship is a willing, costly sacrifice. I wasn't going to say that about the offering, so there's no link there, I promise you. So we're going to look at an event in the life of King David. That's David of David and Goliath fame. A man who was a shepherd, a warrior who'd killed lots of people, a poet, a musician, a flawed human being like everyone else here in this room today. And what's going on, the background to this story, is that God's people Israel are under judgment and there is a plague and sickness that is affecting the people. And God tells David to build an altar. We're going to be looking at 2 Samuel 24 if you're following on your own Bible or device. That day, Gad, who was a prophet by the way, Gad came to David and said to him, go up Build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up to do what the Lord had commanded him. Great response, incidentally. God commanded, he went about it. When Aruna saw the king and his men coming toward him, he came and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Why have you come, my lord the king? Aruna asked. David replied, I've come to buy your threshing floor and to build an altar to the Lord there so he will stop the plague. Take it, my lord the king, and use it as you wish, Aruna said to David. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering. You can use the threshing boards and the ox yokes for wood to build a fire on the altar. I'll give it all to you, your majesty, and may the Lord your God accept your sacrifice. But the king replied to Aruna, no, I insist on buying it for I will not present burnt offerings to the Lord my God that have cost me nothing so David paid him 50 pieces of silver for the threshing floor and the oxen and David built an altar there to the Lord and sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings and the Lord answered his prayer for the land and the plague on Israel was stopped you see David demonstrates us to us something of the heart of worship. David was not prepared to give God something that was cheap or second best. You know, it reminds me really of the, of the boyfriend 
This is not a personal story, you know. A boyfriend on his way to see his girlfriend who suddenly realises he hasn't got anything for her and then quietly nicks flowers out of the garden as he's walking to her house to present to her a gift of love that costs nothing and had no thought. Or like the man, perhaps, who has won a prize in a raffle that's suitable for a lady and the first thought is, well, that's Christmas sorted. That's not worship. Worship that comes from a thankful, generous heart is something else. That is something from a mean, penny-pinching, what-I-can-get-away-with heart. True worship involves sacrifice. It will cost us. It's not just what we bring. It's the heart that it comes from. God always looks for the heart. But our heart, our, our, sorry, our external actions do reveal our hearts, don't they? To offer God the best, as, as Andrew's encouraging us this morning, not to be half-hearted in worship, is a sacrifice. In the light of what God has done for us to present our whole beings to God all day, every day. So what might be the cost to us of corporate worship? Some of these things have been mentioned in our series already. We've been encouraged this morning, we're doing it. Making the choice to praise when you're in the midst of struggle or when you don't feel like it. That's a sacrifice of praise. Making the choice to actually join in with a song when it's really not your favorite. Or you don't like the band or the way they're playing it. Or you don't like the worship leader. Maybe sacrifice is changing your diary so you can serve. Maybe it's actually getting up early enough to get here on time. Maybe it's seeking God during the week for what you can bring on a Sunday because not everything you hear from the front arrives at the last minute. It's born out of our walk with God. It's born out of who we are. God's speaking through the week. Parents, you may need to sacrifice what you kind of feel is your worship the sort of eyes closed, hands up sort of worship because you've got your kids with you and you need to teach them to worship. Actually, that is worship. You know, I regret in our early years of marriage, I was so often at the front of church that Fran was pretty much on her own with our kids. And I'm so glad to say that although they might have imitated me with my guitar leading, because I used to lead worship, actually, they learned how to worship from Fran. She taught them. And I'm so proud that we've got three boys today, three men who lead, lead worship in their own church. That's the, that's the fruit of the sacrifice that she made to teach them how to worship. What are you teaching your kids? Engagement, participation. Worship is a willing, costly sacrifice. What does it cost you? The next story is about King David again. And it touches on this point. God's glory versus David's dignity. Some of you will know where I'm going with this. In this account, David is wanting to restore the presence of God to the people of Israel. That's his heart of worship. The Ark of the Covenant, that's the thing you've all seen in the Indiana Jones, you know what I mean? The Ark of the Covenant was where God had promised to dwell represented God's presence among his people. And they'd lost it. The Israelites had lost it. And although they got it back, it wasn't where it should be. 
at the center of their life. And David wanted to bring it back. Here is David's heart of worship, that God's presence should be central. But David's afraid. God's presence is not to be taken lightly. People had died by disrespecting God's presence. So David shows great respect. This is what happened. Then King David was told, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's household and everything he has because of the ark of God. That's good news. So David went there and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with great celebration. After the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing a priestly garment. So David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of ram's horns. Press pause for a moment to note, especially for men, but not exclusively, it doesn't say that David pirouetted balletically before the ark of the Lord. I thought I might get a, I thought I might get a clap for that, actually. I'm doing my best. It's not David's skill that is being recorded here. It's David's commitment. David danced before the Lord with all his might. In fact, the more you think about it, the odder it gets. David danced before the Lord with all his might. Sounds a bit manic, doesn't it? I'm thinking more like punk, more like sort of madness. It's more sort of, you know. And then it says, added to that, every time they took six steps with the ark, that's not very far, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Are you getting this dance routine? It's kind of weird. Six steps, dancing, kill a bull, kill a calf, six more steps. According to some scholars, they went about 10 miles doing this. Can you imagine the carnage? That's a lot. Manic dance, manic dance, throat slit, throat slit. Manic dance, manic dance, throat slit, throat slit. All accompanied by joyous shouting and manic blowing of ram's horns. It's quite, an, it's quite a spectacle. That's some party. Now, I have to say, you would not see a spectacle like that on here. And you most definitely wouldn't see it on here. But if, by any chance, you did, I think you're more likely to get a reaction like this rather than like this. Now, I'm not suggesting that we return to those things. We've already heard, been reminded this morning, the sacrifice of Jesus is once and for all. We don't need to do that anymore. Thank God for that, once for all time. But demonstrate, God, sorry, David does demonstrate something else of the heart of worship beyond just willing, costly sacrifice. You see, David is unrestrained, he is unapologetic, and he is unashamed in his worship. He is more concerned with the glory of God than he is 
with his own dignity, position, and reputation. Wow. Now, that might have been some party, but not everybody was happy. Let's pick up the story again. But as the Ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, who's actually David's wife, looked down from her window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with contempt for him. Jumping on to verse 20. When David returned home to bless his own family, having blessed the people, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. She said in disgust, how distinguished the king of Israel looked today. Shamelessly exposing himself to the servant guards like any vulgar person might do. David retorted to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and all his family. He appointed me as leader of Israel, the people of the Lord. So I celebrate before the Lord. Yes, and I'm willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I am distinguished. Here's my question. Who is the focus. When David gets home, he arrives to a small domestic. Michael is not impressed. What a complete fool you've made of yourself. What did you look like? The king of Israel, the royal person, royal robes, palaces, servants, whatever, and there you are in a priest's garment dancing like a maniac. What about your reputation? And I suspect in her heart was, and by inference, mine, as your wife. You see, Michael's focus is not the same as David's. He is focused on God and his glory. Did you notice? Twice he says it. I was dancing before the Lord. I was celebrating before the Lord. David's eyes are on the Lord. He wasn't looking at the crowds. He wasn't thinking about the servant girls. He was paying attention to God. His eyes were fixed on God. She is focused on human pride, human dignity, human reputation. Maybe she thought David's worship was a bit repetitive. I mean, you know, 10 miles of dance, dance, bull, bull, dance, dance, bull, bull. You know, maybe it got a bit, a bit repetitive, a bit boring. That's the difference between an observer and a worshipper. I know when I start to think, well, this song's gone on a bit long, that usually means that I've actually disengaged. I've become an observer, not a worshipper. And I think if God is worthy of praise, maybe I should press on with that. Maybe like I should become more childlike because children don't mind repeating things over and over Similarly, just very practically, you know, what's my focus as the band is leading us between songs, you know? Is it on God, or am I kind of watching Mark, saying, what's he going to do now? What are they going to do next? You know, our focus needs to be on God. We can continue after a song has ended to just meditate on the words, to speak out our praise quietly or even in our hearts. Let's keep our focus on God. Let's not be afraid to wait 
for the Holy Spirit as he moves among us with our eyes fixed on God before the Lord. Now, I don't know what your reaction would have been in that story, uh, but before I start throwing stones, I want to tell you a little bit about my story, if I may. Because if you're young here today, you need to know church wasn't always like this, not in my early days. Um, A lot of people sacrificed a lot to make the journey to where we are. You should ask some of the older folks about it. But I grew up in a little village congregational church down in Devon and was taught by people who loved God and taught me to love God. I am forever grateful to them for what they did. But when I went to university, I encountered something that was more like what we saw this morning, spirit-filled worship. I saw people singing songs that were definitely less than a century old. I saw people playing instruments that were kind of modern, songs that were contemporary. I saw people raising their hands. I saw people expressing a sort of worship that I'd never really seen. And maybe what was going on there? My reaction was a bit like Rob mentioned last week. Basically, I thought, they're bonkers. They're completely stark, raving bonkers. Now, that's actually quite a helpful reaction, if you're me. I don't know about you. Because basically, if I think, well, they're all bonkers, that actually means I can put them in a box that says, well, I need to take any notice of what's going on over there because they're all bonkers. If I can pigeonhole them, if I can ridicule them, then what they're doing doesn't have its impact on me. I managed to put it aside. It's easy to push something uncomfortable away by labeling it as weird. I've done it loads of times. Sometimes I still do it. If I think, well, that's just somebody showing off, isn't it, really? I can ignore how it actually pokes at my heart about my fear of what others think of me, about my pride. If I look at someone else's enthusiasm and think, yeah, well, that's just them, isn't it, really? It, it takes away the sting of, why am I not enthusiastic? What's going on in my heart? We can write it off that someone's an exhibition or an extrovert. Easy for them to share at the front. You don't know that. You don't know what it costs people. God knows what it costs people. But by judging, we remove its challenge from our hearts, don't we? Back to my story. Disturbingly, these people that I was with, although I was disturbed, they did seem to have something that I thought was great and that actually I found I wanted. So I was conflicted. So I decided I would find out was it right. So I thought I'll get my Bible out, which was paper one in those days, and I started to look through the Bible. Very disturbing even further. Because what I discovered is that all that I was seeing was in there and worse. I saw singing, shouting, clapping, leaping, dancing, noise, silence, kneeling, bowing, lying prostrate, weeping, laughing. Not an externalism, not a false worship, but a worship from a heart that is able to freely express its love to God. I had discovered that worship could be profoundly uncomfortable and you know what that's okay because (laughs) 
Worship is uncomfortable very often when God is doing something in my heart. And that's okay. <laughs> that's God being God. God among us is not for our comfort and our enjoyment. It's so that he can be God. If we're disturbed in worship, it may just be the Spirit of God working in us. So I was challenged now. What was I going to do? I had to change my thinking next. I had to change my thinking. Well, maybe these people aren't bonkers because this is all in the Bible. So, so maybe this is, what, this is what God wants. That's the process. We are a church. We are a people with a commendable history of being wanting to be people of the book, people who follow what God has said. And that's great. And we need to celebrate and continue that. But we can't just assume that everything just goes on like that. We need to sometimes hold the Bible afresh up as a plumb line to what we do. Have a read of the Psalms again. See what it says about worship. You see, the challenge for me about whether I valued God's glory more than my pride was actually, it came out through football. Now, you might think that's strange, you see, but I was a big football fan. And I felt God say to me, if you can shout and scream and jump and dance and cry sometimes for 11 men kicking about a football, why can't you do that for me? Ooh, ouch. (laughs) So I decided that God's honor was greater than more important than my pride. And I started in my little student room, because I didn't want to show off to other people, and I started singing, and I started dancing and kneeling, all in my little room before the Lord. And I felt like a complete twerp. But I truly believe that like a father appreciates their children's artwork, which is not quite Leonardo da Vinci, God loved, God loved my sacrifice of praise. It pleased the heart of God. It was a breakthrough for me that actually opened up for me a life of, of worship. I love to worship. I used to, I've led worship for years, and it was that opening door into that whole world of worship for me. doesn't mean my battles are over. I still fight them. Now on to our final story. This is a story, it's the one about Jesus and the woman and extravagant worship. So stick with this story. It's, quite, uh, it's, it's a little bit long, but try and imagine yourself into the story. This is in Luke chapter 7. Afterward, a Jewish religious leader named Simon asked Jesus to his home for dinner. Jesus accepted the invitation. When he went to Simon's home, he took his place at the table. In the neighborhood, there was an immoral woman of the streets, known to all to be a prostitute. When she heard about Jesus being in Simon's house, she took an exquisite flask made from alabaster, filled it with the most expensive perfume, went right in to the house of the Jewish religious leader and knelt at the feet of Jesus in front of all the guests. Broken and weeping, she covered his feet with the tears that fell from her face. She kept crying and drying his feet with her long hair. Over and over, she kissed Jesus' feet. Then she opened her flask and anointed his feet with her costly perfume as an act of worship. 
when Simon saw what was happening, he thought, <laughs> this man can't be a true prophet. If he was really a prophet, he'd know what kind of sinful woman is touching him. Jesus said to him, Simon, I have a word for you. Go ahead, teacher. I want to hear it, he asked. He answered, always a dangerous answer. Be warned. It's a story about two men who were deeply in debt. One owed the bank $100,000, the other only owed $10,000. When it was obvious neither of them would be able to repay their debts, the kind banker graciously wrote off the debts, forgave them all that they owed. Tell me, Simon, which of the two debtors would you think would, would be the most thankful? Which one would love the banker most? Simon answers, I suppose it would be the one who, with the greatest debt forgiven. You're right, Jesus agreed. Then he spoke to Simon about the woman still weeping at his feet. Don't you see this woman kneeling here? She is doing for me what you didn't bother to do. When I entered your home as your guest, you didn't think about offering me water to wash the dust off my feet. Yet she came into your home and washed my feet with her many tears and dried my feet with her hair. You didn't even welcome me into your home with the customary kiss of greeting. But from the moment I came in, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't take the time to anoint my head with fragrant oil, but she anointed my head and feet with the finest perfume. She has been forgiven of all her many sins. This is why she's shown me such extravagant love. But those who assumed they have very little to be forgiven will love me very little. Sobering story. The woman's worship was wildly extravagant, way over the top, crazy. But Jesus didn't condemn her. Even though that amount of money that she used would have definitely helped lots of poor people. Lots. Jesus accepts it as an act of pure worship. But Simon, the host, and I'm guessing perhaps me, perhaps many of us, uh, found it all a little bit more difficult. I mean, there they are about to have dinner. This woman comes in and starts going off. I mean, awkward at the very least. Cringy, a bit embarrassing, really, you know. Is anybody going to say anything? Perhaps we should throw her out. I mean, what do you do around that? And Simon did what we sometimes do. He took offense at what was going on. He was not impressed that Jesus didn't seem to know who this woman was. He starts judging Jesus. Well, if this guy was a prophet, can't be. Then he starts judging the woman. Well, we all know about her, don't we? Her worship can't be acceptable. He seemed to be sure that if Jesus really knew who she was, he would send her away. Wrong. Jesus knew who she was. He didn't send her away. Then Jesus, Simon, Simon knew these things. He assumed her worship was unacceptable. Wrong. He's making all the wrong choices. And then Jesus points out where the very woman that Simon is despising is the one who has a lesson to teach him. Sobering, isn't it? The one he thinks 
couldn't teach him anything because she's sinful. And of course, he isn't. You know, she has the lesson for him. Here's what I've observed in myself, is that my response to what other people do in worship says more about my heart than I can ever judge about theirs. My response to what other people do in worship says more about my heart than I can ever judge of what's going on in theirs. And how God judges, God who sees the heart, and I don't, how he judges can be very different to mine. My wife, Fran, many of you will know, she's, uh, she used to lead worship with me. She's a great singer. She's really musical. But she also signs for the deaf. And I've been very touched. She, she, she has come back sometimes. She's been to a deaf church. And she says, the worship there is extraordinary. It's a total cacophony. I mean, it is. It's, it's, it's mental. They can't hear. <laughs> and they're singing at the tops of their voices. But she didn't come back to me and say, terrible music. She came back to me and said, it's so moving to see the heart of these people to worship God. I am sure God is more pleased with their cacophony than my best choral efforts. It's the heart that counts. Simon Holly, who leads the King's Arm Church in Bedford, tells a story in his book, Sustainable Power, about a visiting speaker who came to a conference at their church. Now, this speaker, it's always dangerous to invite people, isn't it? This speaker decided he felt it was right that, that the church should worship in using a conga. The trouble was they were a very cool, hip, trendy young church, and they did not do cheesy. But the trouble was they couldn't do very much to stop him. Now, in case those of you uh, don't know what a conga is, it looks roughly <laughs> like that. See, not cool, not hip, not trendy, definitely cheesy. Okay. And in Simon Holly's words, he says this. I could see the point. Our worship was passionate, but a little too serious, a little too uptight. But after the event, I had a wall of complaints, he said. Angry people. Again and again, I had to tell people, look, if you don't like to conga, that's fine. If you'd never do a conga again, that's fine. But if it makes you angry that other people are enjoying congaing in the Lord's presence, then something is wrong. What's really going on? Again and again, a religious control was exposed in hearts as people realized that what they had felt was our freedom in worship had become a bondage. That religious control in the heart made any other type of worship somehow wrong. Many were able to come to repentance and get free. The conga is not the point. The attitude of heart is the point. Our corporate worship should be characterized by integrity, by joy, and by freedom. That we should be free. So in closing, 
And I'm going to ask Ange to come out in a minute and just lead us in our response here this morning. You know, last week, if you were here, we sang a beautiful song, a cry to God, Spirit, break out. Break our walls down. And I think that's how it works. I believe that's what God is wanting to do more and more. Spirit, break out. We long for that. Break our walls down. If we're to see more of God's presence and power in our meetings, and I believe we are increasingly, I believe it's going to be a challenge to our hearts. So just get ready. If we share a passion with King David for God's presence to be at the very center of our church life, then we must be prepared for willing, costly sacrifice because he is worth it in the view of all God has done for us in Christ. We must be ready, folks, to put God's honor and glory before our own pride and position and dignity. We'll need to be prepared for and open to things that may challenge and test our own hearts and motives. That's okay. It's good for us. It's part of God making us more like him. The hallmark of our meetings, the longing that we have is for the presence of God. And a sense, not that we are all the same, because we're not, but the sense that we are all free. Free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And that's available for us this morning.